Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. You know what? I really thank you for listening. I really appreciate the fact that 15,100 listens in two and a, two years and a couple of three months uh, on Spotify with our podcast. Boy, I tell you, the I, I'm grateful for the word getting out and for the folks who are listening to the podcast. And I always encourage you to listen to the podcast. It's okay if you listen to the radio broadcast on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. or Monday mornings at 1 a.m. But sometimes our guests go a little longer, and it all depends upon whether our guests have the time available to uh, uh, extend it beyond the 50 minutes that we normally do for our program. And we thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to support us financially, we have a PayPal and Patreon account for our security as well as yours. I always love to have that middleman in this case uh, so that we can always trace things down if there is a problem. And let me tell you, there have been over the years, uh, I use PayPal for other things as well, and I can go back and I can say, well, it was charged here, but it never went here, or it shouldn't have been charged here, but it did, and da-da-da-da-da. So there's sort of a... I'll call it a digital paper trail. Uh, two ox- it's a sort of an oxymoron, a digital paper trail, really? Uh, anyway, I hope that uh, you are enjoying the programs. I'm hoping that you are listening on Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Spot- I said Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Blueberry, Player FM, and a bunch of other places folks are linking to. Our program today is, uh, we're going to dive into it, especially considering the fact that on this day of this interview, uh, I have been playing around for the first time in years with a computer. Now, I'm working with a computer all the time, but I'm talking about where I had to tear a computer apart. We had a power outage. They shut our power down to do some maintenance work, powered it up, and for whatever reason, our streaming computer wouldn't come up. And I, I and apparently the power supply died. Now, when I opened it up, there was there was a family of dust bunnies living in there. And uh, I had to go in and clean that out, and I had to pull the power supply, buy a new one. And the new one, I couldn't believe it was $150, but it was the only one they had. <clears throat> and um, I'm trying to figure out how it works because it's no, there are no cables connected to the box. You've got to figure out which ones to connect where. <laughs> in any event, I finally figured it out with uh, some help from our chief engineer, Bill Bordeaux. I thank him very much. Uh, for his mentoring in my uh, in my uh, uh, at this time in my life, and I finally got it to boot up, and it's now working, and the stream is up and running, and it's been years since I used to build these things. Now, I used to build them, but I never wrote the code. I was never able to master DOS per se. Now I learned how to write it. I remember writing it across the screen, one of these small little screens, you know, way back when. I looked at it and I thought, wow, um, I can't believe, A, that not only do I understand it, but I'm in awe of the fact that I actually wrote it. It's another language. It's just a code. It's like zeros and ones. It's a code, binary code. Well, today's guest is going to talk to us about that, but not exactly. He's going to talk to us about how you can master your code, the art, wisdom, and science of leading an extraordinary life. Darren Gold is my guest. Darren, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I have to tell you that when I shared with my father, who went to a computer programming school in college, when they were still using fanfold paper and punch cards, you remember those, don't you? Or are they a little before your time? I, I, I remember of them. Of a them. Time. <laughs> you, you now go to a museum to look at them is what you're yeah. telling me. 
Uh, anyway, I used to tell him how my observations of computers back in the 90s when I was introduced to them um, was that it, it's very similar to the human being. Uh, you have a program, uh, an operating system, if you will, uh, and then you have your peripherals. In our case, it's our five senses, maybe the sixth sense. Uh, you have this code that is used to write the program. Uh, and then, of course, you have the physical body, the box and all of the elements, just like we have a physical body. And our DNA, I guess, is our code, which we're going to find out in just a moment. Um, and I remember telling him about how I thought that the computer was kind of like our own brains, you know, and, and, and I started making all the analogies. And my, my dad turned to me and said, no, you're wrong. And I'm going, wait, wait a minute, what? <laughs> the only thing the computer didn't have back then was emotion. Uh, and, of course, that's an assumption. That's an assumption on my part. So is the code that you're talking about, mastering your code, have anything to do with our DNA? Uh, not really. I mean, it, 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 I think you were correct insofar as to say that, um, and the essential argument I make in the book is that each of us, over the course of our lives, much of it in early childhood, um, develops what I call a computer program. I really use that as a metaphor for a collection of subconscious safety-based beliefs, values, and rules that really automatically drive your behavior and limit your results. Um, so when I refer to a program, I'm referring to the underlying beliefs and values and rules that we hold, much of which um, we made up early in childhood, much of which we're not even conscious of, and much of which is designed to keep us safe, not necessarily for us to thrive. Which is, of course, is a bit different than, than our DNA. Yeah, and I will tell you that the goal of this program, my goal for myself and everyone else, is to move from the, the phase or the, the period or the programming, as we'll talk today, of survival. Mm -hmm. I want us to all move to thrival. Okay, it's a word I've made up, and I can do that. Uh, <laughs> how do you think, folks, words got in the dictionary in the first place? We made right. them up. Um, but thriving, I, it's like, why is that such a concept that people are so afraid of in the sense that if you tell someone, uh, uh, Darren, if you tell someone, I am going to give you the tools to allow you to thrive. However, there is a condition, and that is that you're gonna, you might have to give up some of your old ways of doing things, of perceiving things, of processing mm -hmm. things. And that seems to, I don't know if the right word is scare, but it certainly prevents people from choosing to thrive. Yeah. It really does. And I think in, in large part because the, the very things that um, we're asking people or at least inviting people to take on and evolve and shift and change and grow from were the very things that actually served them really well and protected them. So it's really hard to give up something that particularly early on in life served you really well. I talk about something called survival strategies, which is this notion that when we're when we're young, um, we all encounter some sort of traumatic experience and it could be something as you know, really severe trauma or it could be something as simple but nevertheless really impactful as just being excluded or teased or bullied. Hmm. And in those moments, we create survival strategies. For me, uh, and I share this in the book, I, was, I moved from London, England to, the, to Southern California and I, I say 
you know, it was really cool to have an English accent if you were 18, but not so much when you were eight, which I was. Yeah. And I got, I got teased mercilessly for it. And so I came up with a strategy, a rule around being likable. And for me, that was my strategy for being included and belonging and feeling safe, psychologically safe. And it served me incredibly well um, early on in life and even into adulthood. Um, I began to realize the limits of its effectiveness though. Um, in particular, I had real trouble having direct, honest conversations with people because I didn't want to put my likability uh, at risk. And so when we're asking people to live an extraordinary life or do things that will lead to thriving or thrival, <laughs> Um, it's asking them to take on the very things that have really served them well. And, um, I think that's the kind of source of a lot of resistance people have. You know, it's very interesting that you have come out with this particular work at this time in our lives. Uh, there's always that wonderful synchronicity because we are looking at, and we regularly do the ancient wisdom teachings, as I like to call them. Yeah, uh, there are many that I haven't touched in on, and and would love to find out more about. Certainly, <clears throat> as a Catholic growing up, uh, uh, and then of course working for 15 years uh, in a Christian radio station, greatest education I was ever paid for. I want you to know, uh, but I was a big disappointment to the general manager when I left, because he referred to me as a casualty of Christian uh, Christian broadcasting because I wasn't towing the party line. Uh, and the only reason I wasn't was because I was curious. And the one thing that always uh, sort of <clears throat> frustrated me was that the people who had this faith didn't seem to be that interested in some of the, and maybe this was more intellectualizing than anything else, they didn't seem to be interested in the inconsistencies of the answers they would get to their questions. And I was mm -hmm. asking questions all the time. That's why I'm doing a show. Because... Yeah. Um, uh, it's not, and, and, you know, you talk about um, uh, these beliefs and rules that don't serve us anymore. Do you know that during that period of time, there was a five-year period it took me where I finally let go of the belief in a literal devil and a place called hell. Mm. Uh, it just made no sense based upon what I was reading from those particular texts. It just—it was so illogical— um, it, it basically it smacked of extortion. That's the mm. way I viewed it. Okay, that is I'm not putting that on anybody else. It view it it looked to me like extortion, and that was my perspective. Um, so when we are talking about this this code, we're also talking, or you, Darren, are talking about how to be the uh, uh, the shaper of your life and not a victim of your circumstance. Now, can we talk non-politically about the last president, the last presidential cycle, not the present, but the last presidential mm -hmm. cycle and how victimhood was the unofficial title uh, or slogan for the campaigns? Yeah, I, you well, know, let's let's talk about victimhood. Maybe we can stay away from the politics. Yeah, but it seemed me, I uh, thought we'd 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 recovered from that in the eighties. <laughs> we were only so lucky. Um, well, let me just uh, mention one um, 
distinction and then we'll get into victimhood. Sure. It's something I, I, I spent a lot of time working with business leaders around. And, um, the, but the distinction that I write in the book is sort of we're run by this program and the fundamental choice that every human being has, and you first have to be aware, right, that you're run by a program is to consciously construct a set of beliefs, values, and rules that are purposefully designed to serve you and lead to extraordinary results. And that's what I call a code. So I distinguish between a program that really runs you uh, uh, and a code that you consciously construct um, that really serves you. Um, so I just wanted to make that distinction clear. And I think that is the secret to leading an extraordinary life. Somebody who is in control of and is shaping his or her beliefs, values, and rules. I say the fundamental the, hum, the fundamental human superpower is the ability to choose the beliefs that we hold uh, and to do it in a way that is um, designed to really serve us and lead to thriving. Um, one of those beliefs that's sort of, you know, I, I hate to use the word hardwired, but I'll use it anyway, hardwired into who we are as human beings, largely because of how we're conditioned, is the belief that we have about our circumstances. It's something in, that psychologists call a locus of control. And on one end of the spectrum of locus of control is uh, people who have an external locus of control. And they believe that the world happens to me, circumstances shape me, there's very little I can do to affect my situation. And there's a lot of evidence for that, but it's not a very powerful belief to hold. And that's what I call a victim mindset. On the other end of the spectrum, the psychological spectrum, and we have 50 years of, of evidence and research around this, um, is something called an internal locus of control or what I call a responsible mindset, which is the belief about our circumstances that I shape my circumstances. There's always something I can do to affect any situation. Um, and it's a fundamental choice, although most people will hold a belief that's closer to a victim belief. It's a very seductive place to be because it allows me to externalize responsibility, avoid responsibility. It's just not a very powerful belief and it doesn't lead to extraordinary results. So I think what's getting played out in our society writ large is an understandable but very disempowering orientation to blaming others and giving up the power that we all have to really control and shape our circumstances even when it seems like things are very difficult to control. And I see that showing up um, everywhere in particular in the work that I do with very senior business leaders. Um, and it is, I think, one of the most, if not the most fundamental shift you can make in your life. Well, I know that uh, as we move forward in our lives, we are inundated by all kinds of information. Some of it true, some of it not so true. I'm not going to use the current vernacular. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that we, in this, in this age in particular, we are inundated by information just constantly. And we're inundated by different philosophies, different perspectives, different opinions, and on and on and on. Uh, if you, if if we have sort of already preset all of the, the the beliefs and rules, say by what is it like by the age of eight or nine, something like that? I mean, I think a lot of them yeah. are, are formed in those in years, but we continue to add to them and we continue to modify them. But we add to the old ones. Yes. Exactly. Do do we find ourselves from time to time actually, maybe it's unconsciously, eliminating some of them, even if even if we're not really trying? It's not <clears throat> a question of 
this doesn't make any sense. I need to rethink this whole belief system. Sometimes it's just this information keeps coming in. And then all of a sudden you find yourself going down a path that you had never dreamed that you would be going down. And now you're wondering yeah. why you're going down that path and you're not feeling really good about it. Is that because there is a real uh, um, there's a real ability on the part of uh, our exterior world to actually manipulate us into doing s stuff that maybe we we would have never done because our old beliefs said, no, you don't do that. And yet all of a sudden, here we are, we're doing that. Does that make yeah, sense? I mean, there's, it does. I mean, there are two ways to, to answer the question. One is to just acknowledge that our environment um, can, if we allow it, significantly shape the way we make meaning of our circumstances, right? And our culture, our family of origin in particular. Um, so, you know, if we allow our environment to shape, you know, our value systems, our, the things that we believe in, um, it will, and uh, it can exert a very, very powerful effect. So I would say number one, and again, the choice, um, uh, I think people that tend to be more fulfilled, experience more joy, um, experience more success, what I call in the book, you know, really lead an extraordinary life for people that um, are in choice about how much of their environment they allow to shape them. Um, the other point I would say, and I write about this in the book, is that, you know, it used to be that we thought that, um, you know, we develop as children through very distinct stages of development. There's a whole body of work, you know, called uh, around childhood development. And we see that as as parents, we see our children go through fundamental stages of developmental maturity. Um, we now know and have known for about 30 or 40 years that adults go through similar stages of development. They're, they're more subtle, they're harder to detect. The most classic one is, um, and maybe some of your listeners can relate to this, that you go through life, particularly in adolescence and early adulthood, and, and many people stay here. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a way of, um, it's just a certain stage, which is, what Bob Keegan, the psychologist, calls uh, a socialized mind, where much of my self-worth is determined by other what others think of me. Um, and for again, for many people, they live they their, their life plays out from that stage of development, and there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't mean you can't uh, lead a very good life from that stage. Some people, whether it's conscious or just something in their life, causes them to reassess how they're making meaning of themselves and others in the world comes to the realization. And this is a big developmental shift. It's what Keegan calls going from socialized mind to self-authored. They say, wait a second, I can't live my life dependent on what others think about me. Is it important? Sure. Do I care about what others think of me? Of course, I'm never going to not care, but I can't be driven by that. I have to author my own life. And that is a profound shift in belief system. Um, where I begin to say, you know what, how I show up is really more a function of what I care about than in what others, uh, care about. And it's a very, very powerful, uh, shift in, in meaning. So we go through these distinct stages of development, much like children do, and they can totally affect, um, how we live our lives, the kind of effectiveness, um, you know, we can, we can exhibit and demonstrate and achieve. One of the things that uh, I came across some years ago in an interview with uh, an evangelical fundamentalist Christian, and I'm not picking on him, don't, don't get me wrong, folks, I'm not picking on anybody here, but it just comes up to mind, as I've often said uh, to our listeners, uh, Darren, 
Uh, the universe asks the questions. I'm just along for the ride. So I, I'm not intending any disrespect to anyone. But this gentleman, he was a musician. He grew up in what was called the Jesus Movement of, I guess, the 70s. And um, <clears throat> we were chatting in the late 80s, early 90s, and um, um, he shared with me an experience that he had while sitting in his writing room uh, after he had moved out to uh, New England. And uh, it was fall, and he was watching the colors of the leaves and everything. And he began to ponder this question, and I thought it was so profound coming from this man of this particular faith. He said that, uh, I, I grew up in this movement, and I was taught all of these different things. And here I am, and I think he was maybe in his 40s at the time we were talking. And he says, I started wondering, is what I believe what I've been told to believe or what mm -hmm. I truly believe? How do we come to that awareness and understanding to be able to parse out, if you will, those yeah. beliefs that our parents and institutions have given us versus uh, those that we truly have embraced no matter what anybody else says. That's essentially what I'm trying to do in the book is to give people um, a distinction, this distinction between program and code. It's a distinction that psychologists call subject object that we hold that we're subject to a set of beliefs. We don't even see the beliefs. I talk about in the story David Foster Wallace shared in a commencement speech. He said, there's two fish swimming along and an older fish swims by and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And the other two fish look bewildered. And they say, what the hell is water? And in many respects, it's a great metaphor for how we live our lives. We literally are swimming metaphorically through the waters of our culture and our beliefs that have been given to us, right? That we were either we either were given to us or that we constructed unknowingly, you know, uh, particularly in childhood. And we don't even see them as object, as something to reflect on, to question. We're subject to them. And one of the most significant shifts you can undergo as a, as a human being is to begin to hold as object the beliefs that run you. Say, wait a second, I have all these beliefs. And I say there are three things about beliefs. I think this is really important. Number one, every single belief you hold is made up. Doesn't mean it's wrong or right. It's just made up. There's no objective truth. Number two um, is that most of the beliefs we hold were designed to keep you safe. And number three, not for you to thrive. And number three, that if most beliefs, if not all beliefs, are made up, they can all be remade up or reconstructed. And this is this human superpower I was talking about. And when adults or human beings begin to have this kind of awareness that they have choice over the beliefs they hold. And I say that there's no such, it doesn't matter whether a belief is true or not. That's the wrong question to ask. The real question is which belief better serves me? And I have a choice. Um, it's an incredibly empowering place to be. And um, for often people, you know, when they go through like the story you were just sharing is this wake up to wait a second, I have these sets of beliefs that are really running me. Every part of who I am, how I see the world, doesn't mean I need to discard them or demonize them, but I can hold them up as object and reflect on them and say, yeah, this part of this belief really serves me, this part doesn't. What if I were to expand the belief or maybe shift the belief? And now I'm in choice. And it's a, it's a very different way of, um, of making sense uh, of yourself and your environment.
If you're just joining us, my guest is uh, Darren Gold. He's written a book called Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. Let me ask you, how, and, and of course this requires us to consider a scale, a ranking mm-hmm. system. I'm curious as to how far along this path are you? Um, zero to ten, let's just say, or we could go zero to a hundred to to yeah. give you a little more breathing room there. <laughs> but how? First of all, how far along do you feel you are, and how do we begin what you started and are now sharing in this book, Master Your Code? Yeah. Well, I would. Um, I'll stay within your scale, but I do want to make the argument that there's no end. Um, that, you know, it's a path of mastery and all of the writers of mastery and all of the ancient, you know, traditions view mastery as a path that is never ending. It's sort of like a mountain with no top. And so I very much view this path of mastery that I'm on to really master myself, which is the most important thing to master in my view, um, as a never ending path. I'll never reach, there's no 10, there's no hundred. It's, uh, I just I'm just enjoying being on the path. And I would say to answer it maybe more qualitatively, I'd, I, I use something called um, a conscious competence spectrum. I say at the very beginning, we're consciously incompetent. And we're sorry, we're subconsciously incompetent, which means we don't even know we're, we're incompetent at this sort of game of like really understanding and having mastery of ourselves. We then move to something called conscious incompetence where we kind of know we're we're still incompetent and i use like playing golf as a metaphor and i talk about my my phases of you know learning this very frustrating game of golf and then at some point with enough practice practice and early mastery we move to something called subconscious competence which uh, sorry conscious competence which is we're starting to get more comp- competent but we have to be thinking about it a lot right and and it doesn't just come naturally to us and then ultimately we get to this place of subconscious competence where we don't even think about it anymore. It's so ingrained and embodied and habitual. It's just who we are. And I'd say I alternate between conscious competence where I have to remind myself, I make mistakes, I course correct, and some times of just complete subconscious competence where it's effortless and uh, it's so ingrained in me because of how much of my life I commit to uh, my own personal mastery. And so I don't know where that lands on the, you know, the zero to 10 scale. Um, it's certainly, I'm nowhere near, uh, and never will get to all the way there, but, but I, I fluctuate between, but, but I spend most of my time in competence and that doesn't mean that every once in a while I'm not in, you know, you know, really take a step backwards or, 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 uh, but I, I quickly recover and I don't beat myself up. Um, there's a lot of self forgiveness and I recognize I'm a human being and I'm a work in progress and always will be. And so a lot of it has to do with, your relationship to um, how you're doing and the mistakes that you might be making. And if I think of them as like these terrible things, you know, I'm probably not in a great place. How does so one, that, that's, that's kind of where you're at. How does one use their body, their physical body uh, in mm. this process? Because you actually uh, talk about that in, in controlling yeah. one's brain defaults and so forth. Yeah. You know, we are Western beings and we're very cognitive, right? We love we're a lot of time in the head and, and it's a big part of, you know, how to how to really um, develop self-mastery and lead an extraordinary life is really getting mastery of our minds. Um, what often gets neglected is the body. And 
what we now know, and there's a lot of research, um, you may, your listeners and, and, and viewers may have uh, watched a TED talk by a woman named Amy Cuddy, who talks about the importance of posture. And um, there's enormous amount of, of research that says the body affects the brain just as much as the brain affects the body. Now we get the brain body connection, that, that direction, right? If I want to pick up something, my brain sends a signal to my body and my body um, follows suit. But we now know that the body is sending signals to the brain all the time, and it's sending one of two unmistakable signals. Either I'm safe or I'm in danger. And depending on the signal your brain receives, a very different part of the brain gets activated. Now, the brain's very complex, and I'm going to reduce it to something really simple here, so hopefully uh, there's no neuroscience scientist listening that will be offended. But if my body sends a signal to my brain that I'm unsafe, the part of my brain called the limbic system where my fight, flight, freeze response center is located, gets activated. And that's great for physical survival, uh, getting out of harm's way. It's not great for living a really extraordinary life, a life of, of, of thriving. If my body sends a signal to my brain that I'm safe, my prefrontal cortex goes online and the fight, flight, freeze response center gets dimmed. And I'm now at my best where my creativity is located, where my executive function is located, um, where I can focus, uh, where I can self-regulate. And that's really important, right? I don't get as triggered as easily. And when I do, I can recover much quicker. And so a lot of it is how do we use our body so that the predominant signal we're sending to our brains is one of safety. And there are three ways. One is the posture. You know, So I'm, I'm sitting here having this conversation with you. If I want to be at my best, I don't want to be sitting here with my arms crossed, you know, protecting my vital organs. And a lot of people you watch, though, that's the way they stand and they sit because it's going to send a signal to my brain that, you know, things are not safe. I'm having to protect my vital organs against the predator. The other thing is your facial expressions. And we have this amazing gift to smile. And yet we very infrequently use it. And so the more we can intentionally use our facial expressions, uh, the more we're going to be at our best because our body, our brain is going to get this signal that says, hey, this guy's smiling. It's got to be good. It's got to be safe. And then the last thing is our breath. Uh, if you ever notice when you're anxious or angry or frustrated, our breathing stops, actually. And you can imagine what signal the body's sending the brain when the breathing is stopped. Uh, it's not a good one. <laughs> so if we want to be at our best, right, if we want to be at our best and we want to make great choices about the meaning we give our environment because I can encounter a situation and, and it could be a rough situation and I can say, oh my God, the world's coming to an end. Or I could say, what an incredible opportunity to learn. So I have a, this is the human superpower. I get to choose. I'm going to be more likely to choose the latter, the, the empowering way of seeing my circumstances. If my body is in a state that, um, that, promotes the best part of my brain to be online. And we all know this, we wake up in a crummy mood, we're tired, we're exhausted. The quality of the conversations I'm gonna have with my loved ones from that physiological and energetic state are gonna be much less effective than if my body is open, I'm smiling, I'm breathing, I'm well rested, I've eaten well. And so we have this enormous thing called our physiology that we really, very, very infrequently pay attention to and it can have massive impact on the way we make meaning uh, of ourselves and others and our environment. It seems to me that it would behoove us to become aware of how our physical body feels 
in a myriad of different situations, whether you're living in Los Angeles and you're out out on the road or in the streets or, or at some event or a market or a, a mall or what have you, versus uh, maybe a small town, versus out in the woods, say the Redwoods or, or any, uh, like I live in the Los Padres National Forest, uh, at least mm. as far as the, the, uh, the, they allow, <clears throat> and, um, and we have been living there for 14 years, and it's just been remarkable Mm. How from time to time I just pause. I'm sitting up. On, I'm standing up on the porch that's screened in, keeping the bugs out, and mm. just looking out over the valley to the north. And um, right now it's beautiful and it's green and it's lush, and I can hear the birds and we see deer and we see this animal and that animal and on and on and on and the. I mean, it's just it's such a difference even from being down here in the Santa Barbara area. Does that sound like a good plan for us that we should become more the observer, even if it's just for 30 seconds or a minute or two uh, as we're moving through our day? Uh, Absolutely. You know, be attuned to this amazing instrument you have called your body and to be intentional about how you you leverage it. Um, And that can just be as simple as checking in with your breathing. Right. And now, you know, as much as technology can be a distraction and, and all of the complications we have with technology, and now a lot of the technology is building in reminders to breathe. Um, so leverage your technology for that because we're very rarely focused on, oh my God, I just need to slow down and take three deep breaths. And it sounds a little corny, um, but there's some wisdom in that, you know, wives' tale of like, you know, slowing down and, uh, and counting to 10. Because what it's allowing your body to do is to get reset. And so the more you can do that, and the more like what you're doing is taking advantage of the outdoors. There's enormous amount of research that points to the incredible salutary effects of uh, nature. The more we can step outside and expose ourselves to nature, um, can have a profound influence on how we feel. My argument is that at times we're gonna not be well rested, we're not gonna have eaten well, we might not have exercised. We may be in an environment that's not conducive to feeling great. We still have to figure out a way to be at our best in those environments if we want to be great, and particularly for people that are leading. Um, and so that's where I go to. You've got it all inside you. Uh, if you don't have the advantage of um, being out in nature or having you know, had a great sleep, although, of course, I encourage that, um, there's still things you can be doing to, to pay attention to your body and make sure you're in the best state possible. We're talking with uh, Darren J. Gold. Darren J. Gold is the website with a .com at the end. Master your choice. Uh, master your choice. That would be good, too. Master your code. That's the title of the book. And we're going to continue here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Do me a favor. Master your uh, internet connection or your radio broadcast and stay tuned. Tell me your stories Welcome back to Tell Me Your Story. I'm wondering, uh, Darren J. Gold, DarrenJGold.com, the author of Master Your Code, that could actually be uh, emphasized two different ways. Become the master of your code, or uh, as it says in uh, many instances, uh, maybe you should um, uh, master, as in PhD kind of thing, your code. Talk to us about that. 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm not following. So the distinction, give that to me again. Uh, the difference is being the master of one's code. In other words, mm -hmm. you are mm -hmm. the controller. You're the alpha versus yeah. um, Got it. having a master's degree, shall we say, in the coding. Yeah. So the, the, the way I would explain that is, um, you know, being the master of is the author of your life. And that's a declaration. It's the first chapter of my book, which is it's a declaration that you make that I won't, I'm not going to be a prisoner uh, of my program, um, even though that program may have kept me safe and I may be leading a very fine life. But I'm going to choose instead and I'm going to declare that I'm going to be the, the author of my life, the master of my code, that I'm going to construct a set of beliefs, values and rules that really serve me. And serving me, they're going to serve others, and they're going to serve the world. And so that's a that's a fundamental tenet of the book, and that every human being, regardless of circumstances, has the opportunity to make that choice. The second part of what you're saying is um, this idea of like a master's in education. To me, means that this isn't a one-time event. You don't just sort of declare I'm the author of my life. It's a lifelong commitment to mastery. And as we talked about earlier, mastery is a path that's never ending. You have to love just being on the path. Um, but to lead an extraordinary life means a commitment to being on a path to mastery of continuous learning and continuous practice. Um, the importance of daily rituals, I can't emphasize enough. The people that are extraordinary, almost every really extraordinary person I've ever met has a daily ritual. And they don't compromise. They won't miss those daily rituals. They form sort of the foundation for whatever practice they have. And um, it's a sign of somebody who's really mastering something. So I think it's it's both of those things are, are essential. I think it's extraordinary in a, a really big way um, that there are those such as yourself who have discovered these these ways in which we can, I like to use all of the different terminologies, raise our consciousness, awaken to uh, transforming our lives, which in turn transforms not only the world at large, but it transforms the lives of the people around us. And in a way, sometimes not in the way that we had intended, in that Sometimes when we go through this process of reprogramming or becoming the master of our code, mm -hmm. some people fall away because they don't like what we see, they don't like what they see because they're not ready yet. And then there are those mm. who actually will draw closer because they love what they see and they want to get more of this and certainly seek people out such as yourself. Do you find that uh, to be the case as well? Yeah, I do. And I want to offer um, maybe a cautionary note uh, uh, to your listeners. Um, and that is that, you know, well, let me let me start with one point and then I'll get to the, the point that the question that you just asked, which I think is a really important one, because what I'm hearing from a lot of people is just this sort of a sense of helplessness. Right? The world is so complex, like right? there's very little I can do. And I think the one thing we all have the ability to do is this idea of self-mastery. Um, it's totally within our control. And so I think there's that that's just that important realization that I wanted to make clear. The question that you ask, I think, is a really important one, because I think a lot of the trap that people fall into, and I really want to caution people against this, is that somehow I have to change others. 
And um, it is comes from a little bit of this victim mindset that, you know, I'm, I've discovered things about myself and now it's my obligation to change others. And this is an inward game. This is not about changing others. This is about really mastering yourself. And it's not even about changing yourself because change has a connotation of like discarding the old and demonizing the old, which is I think why people resist going here in the first place. It's not about that. It's about honoring where we already are and expanding and building on what we already have. Um, but it's certainly not about changing my wife and my kids, uh, because as soon as I'm in the I need to change others uh, game, it's game over. Uh, that's a, that, that comes from a victim mindset. I'm, I always work when I'm working with business leaders and certainly what I do with myself is um, to fundamental um, taking responsibility for myself. And I think what usually happens from that place is people just find that a very attractive way of being and people will get, you know, will be really attracted to that. And sometimes they won't. But I think for the most part, when I hear these stories of I had some profound transformation and all of a sudden, you know, certain friends I lost and others I gained. Um, sometimes that happens because we have a desire to like, you know, have others do the same thing we're doing. And my own experience was I was just very patient with myself and with others. Uh, I was in no rush. And um, I think as a consequence of that, uh, I had very little of that. I had, you know, my friendships just deepened and my relationships with my loved ones just got even uh, better than better than they have because I was I wasn't in a rush I wasn't attached to a certain way of being or having people get get something um, I think that's that's that is a mature way I think of uh, of growing um, and one that I would really recommend. Well, I know that um, this process isn't easy. Now, I actually was um, uh, how how do I put this? Um, I went through many personal growth and development programs from 1980 to like 95, 96, 97. And um, I remember early on in the early 80s, and I was actually going through a program called LifeSpring, which I guess was either a spinoff or similar to EST at the time. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, and I enjoyed it. uh, anyway, I remember in the first couple of days that I was sitting around and listening to the people speak and talk about their stories, the one thought that went through my mind, and now I'm able to laugh about it, then I wasn't, was, my God, when are these people going to get it? What is their <laughs> problem? Uh, of course, it wasn't uh, until, I think, two or three years later that I began to look in the mirror, and they had mirrors on the walls at, the, at this particular program. When I began to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm here too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so when am I going to get it? And and that was rather profound from that standpoint. And my brother and I were having a conversation. Uh, we were at a family reunion down in Coolidge, Arizona, uh, where my father was uh, born and raised. And, and uh, we were having a family reunion at the uh, Elks Lodge. And we were walking out in the desert uh, off to the side of the lodge. And I was sharing with him all of these wonderful insights that I had. And he says, oh, my gosh, Richard, it's about time you got it. And I I piped in. I said, wait a minute, Mike. It's not when you get it. It's that you get it. Mm -hmm. And the when is entirely up to each one of us. Absolutely. That's, I think, a very important factor that you made good comment of early on in the program. Be kind to yourself for not only the progress you make, but sometimes the steps backward that you make. 
because they teach you too about yourself. Talk to us a little bit about working on a, the personal self-confidence, if you will, or self-esteem in that regard of becoming the master of our code and becoming the master to be able to... I, are we overwriting the old code? Are we deleting the old code and putting in new code? It, what's the best metaphor to use there uh, in that regard to what we're talking about? Yeah. Um, well, let me, I'm not sure what the best metaphor is, but I will say this, that far too often we, and I've mentioned this now a couple of times, will will demonize the old. And that is a perfect recipe for, um, you know, for this not to work, whatever this is. Um, but, you know, so I think it's really an honoring of where we where we are and where we've been, and then an expansion of, of the old beliefs. So, uh, and I think that's a, that's a subtle but important nuance, because if we start to say like, you know, the old thing's bad, I need something new, we are gonna get frustrated when we slip, all right? Or we may just not even take it on. It's like, what do you mean it's bad? Nothing wrong with me. And I start from the place there's absolutely nothing wrong with me or, or with you. Um, and in fact, there's no need to do any of this. Now, when you hold that belief, there's just a gentleness that you can, you can um, you know, hold all of this with. And it, it's a liberating way of um, approaching this kind of whole notion of self-mastery. And so um, for me, it's very much honoring what's come before expanding it to include a greater range of beliefs and actions from that greater range of beliefs and actions are going to become, you know, a higher probability of the kind of results that you want in life. And so go back to the example I gave at the beginning of the show around likability, uh, my, this in, obsessive need to be liked, you know, um, which came out of a childhood experience. I didn't go back and say like, I'm not going to be likable anymore. I was like, wow, that's a superpower I have. How do I continue to leverage it? But how do I, modify it a bit so that I'm not so obsessed with it that it gets in the way of me being direct and honest um, at times when I really need to be and where I can where I need to be putting my likability at risk. Um, and guess what? The result is I tend to be more likable than I was uh, to begin with. So I know there's some nuance in that, but that's that's how I would answer that. If you're just joining us, master your code is the subject on the table. With our guest, wrote about the art, wisdom, and science of leading an extraordinary life, Darren J. Gold. DarrenJGold.com is the website. We encourage you to go there. We will be linked to your website as well, Darren, so that people can continue what I like to call their evolutionary process. It's extremely important, in my opinion, doesn't matter what the times are. I keep, I, I'm sure you hear this all the time, especially in, in the news, uh, every once in a while, in the times in which we live. You know, and of course that old, what is it, Chinese proverb that says, may you live in interesting times? Yeah. When haven't we lived in interesting times? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so this is no different. But the other aspect of it, too, is something that I've talked about many, many times on this program. The one constant in the universe. And that constant, unfortunately, we are not taught to embrace and to cherish and actually to encourage, because it's going to happen whether we like it or not. And most people fear it, hate it. Uh, there's a line in a John Denver song that says, uh, changes somehow frighten me. 
Still, I have to mm. smile. It just still turns me on to think of growing old. Now, when I was a kid, not only listening to that song, but in my kid years, I used to think how cool it would be to be an adult and, and to do all of the things that they're doing and go the places and this and that and the other. And then I became an adult and I began to question the logic of <laughs> my kid thoughts. But I would have to say no. I, I mean, I'm almost 60, six zero years old. And I remember back when I was in my early uh, uh, pre-teen and teen years thinking about the year 2020 and when I would be 60. You know, and of course, we're promoting here on this program for the entire year, 2020, the year of perfect vision. And we're talking mm. about inner vision. Talk to us about how important our intuition is, that still small voice, that help that we get from time to time uh, to m maybe even help us to rewrite that code or write a new code to overwrite the old code. Yeah. Well, you know, there's something I, I talk in the book uh, called polarity thinking. And so whenever we talk about phenomena like intuition, I'm always careful to sort of think about its opposite. Right. And, you know, if you say, OK, the opposite of intuition is data. Right. Oh. Uh, and say, oh, OK. And so this is the this is a really interesting phenomenon that we talk a lot and we forget that most complex phenomena occur in opposites. And the reason we have such a divided society right now is we, we neglect to see that distinction. So, you know, somebody might say, I'm really into intuition. You got to, you know, trust your gut. And somebody's like, no, it's all about the facts. And here we go dividing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you see this playing out in society right now. We're as divisive as we've ever been. So anytime I answer a question like that, I'm always thinking about the complexity of the question you're asking and say, yeah, there's absolutely a role for intuition. There's something about checking in with our gut sense. And it so happens that we have a huge amount of brain and neurons in our gut, like literally. There's all sorts of, it's easy to find the, uh, the, the modern science around gut, uh, gut science. And so this, again, the saying, trust your gut, comes from uh, some intuitive notion that there's, there's some real wisdom uh, that's concerned and when we just check in with ourselves. So there's a huge place for intuition. There's also a huge place for data, right? That look, there's facts and there's science and we should be checking that. When we over preference one versus the other is where we get into trouble. And when we you know, label ourselves or others as one or the other is when we get into trouble. The real key to leading extraordinary life is to see that things happen in opposites. It's the ancient wisdom of the yin and the yang paradox. And the most extraordinary people are people that see them as these two opposites that aren't problems to be solved where one, there's a one right answer, but there is a opportunity to integrate the two. So my life is very much about integrating the wisdom of intuition and the wisdom of data saying, how do I bring both of those to bear uh, in the decisions that I make about my life? Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how I would think about that. And I think that's a very valid perspective. I know that I tend to lean very strongly towards my intuition because a lot of the time the facts that I'm working with may or may not be right on. And I'm not saying that the yeah. information that I'm working with is flawed. It's just that uh, I am I'm moving too quickly 
before I gather more facts or more information about those facts. This is one of the things that I find so fascinating. And I realize that in the media, uh, in, in the entertainment industry, movies and television, that unless you have some kind of dynamic happening, there is no program. But yeah. I have, I, I, you, I don't know if, you were, if you're much of a movie watcher, but um, I was watching the movie, uh, what is it, Batman versus Superman? Okay. I watched the whole thing. And they got into this movie-length fight uh, over, I think it was over something about either Superman's mom, and there you go playing the dozens, you know, or Batman's mm -hmm. mom. I can't remember which. And so they spend the entire movie battling each other, trying to kill one another, right? At the end of the movie, the last 15 minutes, and I'm sorry, this is a spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, but it, it bears, uh, the point is, I think, very valid. They stop. They're both exhausted, if that's even possible for these superheroes. Right. And they start talking. They start talking. And they begin to realize that when they started fighting, they didn't have all the information. And if they had just talked about it before, well, of course, then there would have been a very short five-minute movie. They call it a short. Okay? That would have been it. Uh, and I see so many programs. I, I, I was watching this one series um, called, uh, I think it was The Last Ship. It was this naval vessel that, you know, they can't go into any port because something's changed on the mainland of most every country. The governments have shifted and changed. You don't know who to trust and on and on. And now there's this virus that's been released. Well, they come to this one island. And they think it's deserted, and all of a sudden they're being attacked. They're being fired upon by this other group of men who were also uh, uh, in the Navy. And the reason they were firing on them was because they, the inhabitants, thought that the, uh, the, uh, the people that had landed on the island had given them a fake antivirus or, or vaccine that ended up killing uh, a lot of their people. So they're going to kill them, right? They're going to kill the, uh, the new arrivals. And, of course, they, they kill everybody except the leader. And they take him on the ship and they tie him up. And they start talking with him to find out about what had happened. And it turns out they, on the naval ship, weren't the ones who had given him and his people the bad vaccine. Mm. Uh, and so eventually they began to, they, they joined forces. And it's like, I'm sitting here going, Oh my God, if you people would stop shooting and start talking, we might be. And it's like, why can't we do that today in real life? Uh, I have to say that this situation, for example, in um, with Iran and uh, uh, we took out this general mm -hmm. and they accidentally, they say, brought down that plane of, of people, some of their own citizens. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, we're doing it again. We're doing it again, and we, we don't seem to. And so this leads me to where I want to go with you now, and that is on a, on a bigger scale, socially, as a civilization, how do we rewrite? How do we master that code? Because I understand how important it is to master my own personal code, but there is a social code, is there not? There is. Talk yeah. to us about that dynamic. Yeah, it's um, 
I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote a book is, you know, books have changed my life and, and I wanted to write a book that had the, um, the opportunity to do the same. So, you know, I think it's, let me start by just going back to oftentimes we move too quickly into how do we fix the bigger problems and then we just get overwhelmed. So I, let me just do the other quick reminder, which is if all you can do is become a better human being, right? Like what Abraham Maslow said, you know, what one can be, one must be. Like if that's your path in life and you do everything you can, and as a consequence, you're a better parent, you're a better spouse, a partner, a better friend, right? You're a better colleague, right? Uh, you've done so much to contribute to, you know, uh, an evolution of, you know, human consciousness. So there's, don't skip that part. <laughs> like until you're like well on that path, I would say the question of like, how do you move and do the bigger thing um, we just go there too early and we become overwhelmed and nothing happens and we give up this very big responsibility that's right in front of us, which is me. Um, but then it's like about, I think, you know, giving whatever gift it is that you have um, to the world. And, uh, you know, I write in the last chapter of my book, every ancient tradition had a word for or concept for one's unique calling. You know, Hindus called it Dharma. Uh, the Greeks had a word called entelechy. Uh, the Japanese have one of my favorite terms called ikigai, which means what the world needs, what I can get paid for, what I'm good at, and uh, what I love to do. And if you can find that intersection where you can you know, work on yourself, become the best version of yourself and kind of the self-actualized version of you, uh, and then find a place where you can use those gifts and bring them into the world, it could be a small community organization. It could be leading a big organization. It could be just being, and this is a just, which is huge, the be very best leader of your family unit. Um, it could be writing a book. Um, it could be doing something creative, right? But you'll know what that is if you spend enough time thinking about it. That would be the sequence that I would recommend people go through if they're concerned about the future of our world, and many people are, but don't skip the very most important step, which is starting with yourself. And to that end, if you will, and we obviously hope there is there isn't that end in that respect. But mm -hmm. to that end, uh, in your in your comments there, um, there are also those who believe, rightly or, and this is the hard thing for me because I'm really fighting this whole dualism concept in my own mind, uh, right or wrong. Uh, they believe that whatever path we end up going down, be it self-aggrandizement and we raise our consciousness and we move forward and we become a greater people than we ever have been before, or we annihilate ourselves, or somewhere in the middle, that's the path that we're supposed to go down. It's, it's like they say with science. Uh, with new uh, biochemical I discoveries, uh, whether it be, um, uh, what do they call it, um, uh, CRISPR technology, or nuclear physics, or fission, or the super collider, or whatever the technology is going to the mall, going to maybe uh, the manipulation of the gene code to take out this disease, and that is our, maybe we were supposed to discover these things in order to do that manipulation. That is part of our evolution. This is what they might say. 
and I keep uh, throwing the question out in that regard to all of these things and, and many others, just because we can, does that mean we should? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I would say probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, uh, you know, I think that the choice we have when we're confronted with that kind of question is how do we, you know, how much compassion do we have with, you know, people that have, you know, different points of view? And uh, how dogmatic are we about our own? So, you know, this question of like, can I hold a strong point of view and still be, still listen and be compassionate, right? Is, is a really high order skill. Yeah. You know, and I think what we, we oftentimes fall into this trap, this either or thinking of like, either, either I've got a very firm point of view or I'm got this kind of moral equivalence. You know, I really, you know, I think everything's good and everybody has the right, you know, is right. And I don't think it's either or just going back to polarities. I think I can hold a, a strong point of view that's reasoned and that's thoughtful and deliberate, um, but without a excessive attachment to its rightness and with a attendant compassion uh, and empathy to somebody holds a, a very different point of view. Um, that's probably the place I, I would I, I know that's the place that I strive to be uh, whenever I can. One of the, uh, the beautiful philosophies that I have uh, been acquainted with um, is the Baha'i faith and how they have this wonderful process uh, uh, of this uh, nine members uh, of a council who uh, will take your problem mm. into consideration and uh, they will uh, give you an answer somewhere down the road. Okay. Uh, and they will say, and uh, if this does not take care of the situation please come back and we will revisit it mm. uh, it's not written in stone our solution isn't written in stone but the most remarkable part of that process is there are nine members of this this council uh, and there are local uh, city state national and there's also a world council of nine that is in Haifa Israel and when you are elected and you don't campaign for this office, okay? You can't. Other than by just being who you are from day to day, week to week, amongst the followers and so forth. So uh, one of the things that I find so interesting about that is how much further along we as a society would be if we sort of adopted that concept. And mm -hmm. when you do go to the process, go through the process, of, of, of putting your idea out on the table, the moment you put that idea out on the table, it no longer belongs to you. Mm. It now belongs to the collective. It belongs to the group. And so there is no, I'll say there's really no ego involved. Yep. Okay. And it's, to me, it's just a remarkable way of doing things. Um, and, uh, we could learn <laughs> we could learn so much in yeah. that regard if we would just if we would but just do just that learn from it and glean everything we possibly can have you found in your walk um as you share this story of master your code that people are beginning the process uh even if it is just on a small scale of starting to really listen and sort of stepping back out of themselves and maybe metaphorically, euphemistically into the other person's shoes to really genuinely see where they're coming from and maybe really offer them some 
some genuine support and help? Um, not as much as I would like. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, there are, I think, people that are making the argument that we're going through another stage of human consciousness. I, I'm not sure I see it. And I don't, it doesn't, you know, fill me with like tremendous despair. I'm just, uh, I'm just not quite seeing it um, the way people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and in many cases, you know, I, I think there's something to be said for having to see, you know, you know, out of crisis comes you know, catharsis or change. Um, and so, you know, if you look at through history, oftentimes we go through, you know, periods of crisis of reckoning, you know, that really bring into sharp focus, um, you know, our values. And that's when we, you know, when we see the most change. And so yeah. that, that be what we're seeing, but I, I don't see necessarily any sort of broad trend or shift towards people that are really stopping listening and empathizing um, and doing it with the kind of ego maturity that, um, you know, you alluded to, yeah. it's happening of course in pockets and, and, uh, but, but not in sort of a broad trend, at least not what I'm seeing. And I know one of the saddest facts, and I have to say this, that I think it is a fact that it's not going to matter who is elected in November, 2020, that the divide is going to continue and maybe even get worse, regardless yeah. of who is elected. And to me, that is a really sad commentary to which I then put this question to you. Obviously, the answer is, I probably know the answer to this question because you wrote the book, Master Your Code. Are you optimistic about our future, not just as a country, but as a species that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I tend to take a, a long view of history, um, probably longer than we do in the U.S., more of, you know, maybe a Chinese view, um, which is long term. Yes, I think, you know, we tend to have so much recency bias that. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm maybe a, a short term, long, a middle, medium term and long term. So medium term. Yes. Short term. I'm not that confident. Um, I think it's going to take uh, a series of extraordinary leaders to reunite the country. Um, and I don't know, you know, and I don't have a viewpoint around America either. Yeah. Um, it's been an incredible experiment, uh, in democracy, but, and it may just turn out to be that there's nothing, there's no, no such thing as forever. And unless something happens, um, you know, this may become a failed experiment. Uh, as a as a species, you know, in the in the medium term, yes, I'm confident. I think, uh, you know, we tend to overweight recent events. In the long term, kind of who knows? And uh, you know, um, that's a much bigger question, and I think I'm prepared to answer. But uh, I, I I come from a very much a not knowing uh, place around that. Now I do understand, and I appreciate your honesty in that answer. Uh, I like to stay optimistic, and yet all the signs are are certainly, uh, they seem to be pointing. But then again, that's the reason why we are encouraging people to participate in whatever way they choose in 2020, the year of perfect vision, by going within. Because there is no conflict or struggle when you go within and start to listen to your intuition or your still small voice. And again, that's not to... Uh, say that your perspective of a balanced perspective between 
uh, uh, intuition and data aren't valid. It just seems, though, that we've been putting way too much emphasis on the data. Uh, I agree. And, and not enough on the, the, uh, um, the intuition to guide us from literally from moment to moment, day to day, if that were to be the case. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm encouraged from that standpoint that if people begin to do that, they then take their eyes off of their neighbor and they start putting their eyes on themselves and find out who they really are, why they're here, what is their life's purpose. As a matter of fact, I was talking with a woman just the other day, Darren, and uh, we were talking about this kind of thing. And I said that um, now when I start to get distracted by the outer world, whatever it is, whether it be that computer I was talking about at the front of the program or otherwise, I go back and I remind myself of my life's purpose, of why I'm here, or at least why I have discovered why yeah. I'm here. And that helps me to get repositioned. How about you? Yeah, for me, uh, it's purpose is very important. My values are very important. You know, I'm very, uh, very conscious of my values. I, I say my values every single day. Um, and uh, I remind myself of them. They're for me, part of my code something that I've consciously constructed. And I think many ways, like the Greeks were asking this question, you know, over 2000 years ago, you know, what does it mean to lead an extraordinary life? And they pointed to virtues, which are really just fundamental values. And if there's anything you can do as a human being, it's to live in accordance with a set of virtues or values, you know, regardless of what's going on in your external world. Um, and, uh, that's, so for me, that's a very, you know, very important guide. And, I think it's the basic tenet of most religions that we've lost touch with um, and uh, and most ancient traditions. So yeah. for me, that's what I do. What is the one philosophy that if there is one, if you want to list more than one, that's fine, too. But what is the the one philosophy that that permeates your life, that that rules your life, so to speak, or that you have allowed to become part of your code? Uh, say probably, um, uh, stoicism. And this is also kind of an outgrowth of, uh, Greek philosophy. Um, very, uh, popular in kind of ancient Greece and early Roman times. And it's this basic notion that, um, we have control over the meaning that we give to our thoughts and we're going to have thoughts, but what, how we interpret them, uh, is completely within our control. And it's this notion of mastering the mind and um, being the guardian of the mind. And so it's a lot of, I think, the principles in the book have some, you know, relation to the basic principles of, of, of Stoic philosophy. Darren J. Gold, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program, sharing with us uh, not only your story, but also your book, Master Your, Ch Master Your, I can't, I want, it'll be my book, okay, Master Your Choice. Yours is Master Your Code. <laughs> it's the sea that keeps throwing me. The art of wisdom, the art, wisdom, and science of leading an extraordinary life. Would you say that you lead an extraordinary life, Darren? I would say that unequivocally, and I'm, I'm blessed to say that. And I would say that uh, having had to work on that computer uh, in a way that I haven't for probably a couple of decades, um, was it brought back a certain level of excitement. 
<laughs> that I hadn't had in a long time because this is one of those things where I have to make this work. We need this yeah. machine. Well, I did. And, the, I, and, and I don't say this in a prideful way because I'm, I am only able to do that because of all of the teaching I've received from the people who I've had in my life over the years, including our current uh, chief engineer, uh, who gave me a great deal of advice. But I thank you for your advice here on this program in regards to how we can rewrite our code, how we can master our code. And also, I encourage folks to go to your website, DarrenJGold.com. We will be uh, uh, linked to your website. And uh, we encourage people to listen to the podcast of the program. There's a whole lot more that you're going to miss if you don't go to SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many others. Uh, and please help us, uh, if you can, financially. Uh, PayPal and pra- Patreon are two accounts we have on the homepage as well as the missions page where you can also read about what we're all about if you haven't figured that out yet uh, through these interviews. And uh, I want to thank you again, uh, Darren. And if you are ever in the Santa Barbara area, we would love to have you in studio to continue this conversation. There's certainly a lot more to talk about uh, and to dive into. I'd love to do that. And it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You are very welcome. I have three final questions for you before we wrap up the program. And you may have answered them in some fashion during the program, but I'd like to ask them directly. And the first one is, who is Darren J. Gold? Uh, I am an extraordinary leader, coach, author, speaker, athlete, husband, father, son, brother, friend, and colleague. I command my mind and my body to use every ounce of my unlimited potential and infinite capacity to massively and positively impact. It was my identity statement, and it's something that I say every single day. And I write about that in the book, the importance of the beliefs that you hold about yourselves and the opportunity to have an identity statement that you you say every day. Excellent. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Uh, I do think we talked about this, but it's basically, you know, this belief that books can change lives. And my my hope is that it's a gift to people that are at a point in their life where things may be going well or not. Um, but it's a an opening for this invitation to self mastery. And I hope that uh, I'm able to to offer the gifts that I have to others. And finally, what is your life's purpose? My life's purpose is really to um, help people grow, evolve, and experience an extraordinary life. I think that every human being has the potential to lead an extraordinary life. And my life's purpose is to um, really uh, share my wisdom around this big question of what leads what 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 can help someone lead an extraordinary life again i thank you so much for uh, being here with us on the program it's been a, a joy to have you and talk with you about the this idea um because until we can get past the old programming until we can figure out how to rewrite it delete it whatever you want to whatever metaphor you want to use um we're never going to progress as individuals, let alone as a society and a civilization. And uh, I'm I'm going to keep my optimism alive until the very end, if there is a very end, uh, <laughs> yeah. to say, hey, look, we can pull this back from the brink. Um, we've seen it many times in the movies. All we have to do is call Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and The Rock, and they will help us to uh, pull back from the brink. <laughs> and again, thank you yeah. for joining us. 
Thank you so much. I'm Richard Dugan. This has been Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Thank you for listening to the program. And until our next broadcast podcast, love to lol.